I certainly hope we don't have to pay any rights fees on that side. <laughs> You're welcome, Neil. This is hell. Live from the United States where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. Today's protests against racialized police brutality in the United States are completely unprecedented. Never before in the history of this country has the public rose up against what they saw as systemic, even institutional, racialized violence perpetuated by law enforcement. That is, unless you count the uprisings against racialized police violence that occurred in the late 1950s that continued to the early 60s and exploded in the uprisings that took place across the United States in the long, hot summer of 1967. Yes, the so-called riots of 1967 were very much fueled by ongoing police violence that was getting worse and worse as the civil rights movement gained more and more steam and power. Police, like those in Detroit, had essentially been given a license to kill anyone they suspected of having been involved in a crime and was fleeing the scene, armed or not, without any evidence of them actually being involved in that crime or not. This meant that a lot of especially young black men were being murdered by police, police who had often shot the unarmed fleeing suspect in the back, a suspect it was later determined was not actually involved in any crime whatsoever. And the police were able to do it with impunity without any fear of ever getting caught because their own department was telling them, teaching them, how to cover up their crimes. The reaction by the city of Detroit and its police to the civil rights movement was a major police crackdown against those demanding the equal rights they believed they were guaranteed in the Constitution. Sure, after a five-year program that saw Detroit's police become the nation's most deadly, reforms were implemented, but reforms had been put in place in the past, and somehow police were still getting away with murder, and they still do to this day. We'll discuss racialized police violence and brutality, police impunity, police killings, the over-60-year campaign against police brutality, how reforms never seem to work, and how that all played out in Detroit during the Civil Rights Movement when we speak in a few with historian Matthew D. Lassiter, who wrote the Boston Review article, Police and the license to kill. Detroit police killed hundreds of unarmed blacks in response to the civil rights movement. Their ability to get away with it reveals why most of today's proposals to make police more accountable are bound to fail and how we can do better. Matthew is professor of history at the University of Michigan and on the steering committee of the UM Carceral State Project, and he's the co-principal investigator of the Documenting Criminalization and Confinement Research Initiative, known as DCC. Matt is the director and primary investigator of the DCC Project, the Policing and Social Justice History Lab. Detroit Under Fire, published in March, is the pilot proje project of the Policing and Social Justice History Lab. Detroit Under Fire is a multimedia digital exhibit that documents patterns and incidents of police brutality and misconduct, as well as 188 fatal shootings and other killings by law enforcement in the city of Detroit during the era of the modern civil rights movement from 1957 to 1973. The exhibit further chronicles the anti-police brutality struggle waged by civil rights and black power groups and by many ordinary people who demanded racial and social justice and sought accountability for systemic police violence. You can find a direct link to D uh, Detroit Under Fire at our Facebook page, Twitter feed, and at our website, or you can just search online for 
Detroit under fire. Matt's newest book, The Suburban Crisis, Crime, Drugs, and White Middle Class America, is in the final stages of revision and is going to be uh, published in late this year from Princeton University Press. Matt is also the author of the award-winning book, The Silent Majority, Suburban Politics in the Sunbelt South. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show. Well, if it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. What's new by you, Richard? Good morning. Good morning, sir. Uh, I found I have a new neighbor. Oh, really? What kind of neighbor? Um, I walked outside yesterday and found, discovered... Some robins made a little nest on my outside gangway light. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> so up in the rafters, kind of? Yeah, like underneath the, the roof line. Yeah, exactly. I have like a little uh, light, you know, security light or whatever right. for the gangway. And they made a little nest up there. I walked out and there was a bird on the fence, you know, in our between our property. And it wasn't like going anywhere. And it was kind of tweeting at me kind of meanly when I walked by. And I was like, oh. That's a sign. There's a nest nearby. And uh, I looked up, and there it was. I'm getting used to Robin Birdsong. I'm actually able to start identifying it. And we have robins that nest up in the rafters of our back porch. And uh, the wind blows through, and far too often it will blow the nest out. And then we'll find the dead chicks on our deck. And it's really, really disturbing. Yes. Uh, so we didn't do a show yesterday. Thanks to all of you for allowing me a day off. Last week I missed a day because I'd been having these dizzy spells since I got my second dose of the vaccine. Turns out I may have been suffering from symptoms caused by high blood pressure, stress, hypertension. But yesterday I wasn't suffering from anything physically. I started exercising daily and my blood pressure has been dropping every day. But I, I simply needed a mental health day because covering the news that scares the news, reporting on the hell we all cause and are complicit in five days a week here on This Is Hell. In doing so, we we don't have the luxury to ignore the worst of what has happened and will inevitably happen as our society plods forward in denial of our actions having any consequences, learning absolutely no lessons from the pandemic and racing back to the normal of globalization and climate change that got us here in the first place. So yes, we all need a day off from that hell. I told a friend who recently had a heart attack and then died and then came back from the dead. I told my zombie friend that I was taking a mental health day yesterday, but I felt guilty because what I'm going through emotionally cannot compare to what he must be going through. I mean, he freaking died. And he told me, the zombie told me, we all need a mental health year. I'll share a little bit more about exactly why we didn't do a show yesterday following our guest, but more importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what are you old enough to remember? (laughs) What are you old enough to remember? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins. Your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell again. What are you old enough to remember? What are you old enough to remember? Following our guest. Now, you can email us, DM us via Twitter, message us through, through Facebook, or 
You can just send us stuff through the mail by addressing it to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And we got more art sent to us from the good people at KP Printing in my hometown of Detroit. We can only assume they're good people because they keep sending us cool stuff in the mail, including last time sending us two books, The Detroit Printing Co-op, The Politics of the Joy of Printing by Danielle Aubert, and Celebrate People's History, the poster book of resistance and revolution which has forwards by two past guests from our show Charlene Carruthers and Rebecca Solnit they also uh, people over at KP Printing also sent us these 6 by 8 inch cardboard prints that have different sayings on each beautifully printed on them in the past we got one that says free your mind and your ass will follow which we enjoyed because anytime you cite parliament funkadelic that's a good thing We got another one that says progress brings its own problems, which reminded me of East German propaganda, but also sounds like a great tagline for this is hell. Progress brings its own problems. This is hell. And we also got this series of now three of these cards that have different sayings. Biden, the last blank president, each one. The first one we got was Biden, the last sexist president. The second one we got was Biden, the last racist president. And the one we got this week is Biden, the last capitalist president. And I'm still trying to figure out exactly what KP printing means by these Joe Biden last president images. I'm assuming they're either sarcastic or they're building up to something like Joe Biden, the last president, period. And we got more mail in the actual mail. For those of you keeping score at home, I have a chronic stomach ailment that flares up every so often and at its worst kept me from doing a week of shows last year. I also had a very bad reaction to the second dose of the vaccine that forced us to cancel a show a few weeks ago and then the lingering dizziness, which was either from the vaccine or high blood pressure, missed a show last week. And on top of all of that and being legally blind, I also suffer from lower back issues due to a workplace injury that occurred while working with the Michigan Youth Corps a jobs program for young people who could not find work but were willing to do hard labor for low wages. And listener Gidden was very thoughtful and concerned about my back. So he was so thoughtful and concerned that Gidden wrote and sent an actual handwritten letter that included what he believes can help my back. Gidden writes, Dearest Darling Chuck, which is awesome. Mid-length listener, maybe five years now, I've gained a few gray hairs. Not your fault. I blame genetics, not dismal information. Enclosed is a Chinese herbal formula that is helpful for back pain. Back support CR. The CR stands for chronic. No, not that kind of chronic. Neither does it contain tiger penis, scorpion, centipede, gecko, seahorses of any of the other, or any of the other heinous animal products in the pharmacopoeia of Chinese medicine. Rest assured, no bear's gallbladders were tapped to produce this product. The first two ingredients of back pain CR are honey-fried licorice licorice, and peony. They are effective in soothing muscle spasms. So when your back revolts, try this. I'm ignorant of the cause of your pain, so I'm not sure if this will help, but it might. And that would make me happy. I love your show and everyone involved and sent my ex to a This Is Hell art show when she was in Detroit to or in Chicago sorry to see Jawbreaker at Riot Fest or whatever the hell that event was called she said it was a hell of a bus ride and she brought me back one of your old white this is hell t-shirts 
I like very much your new producers and engineers, especially Richard Norwood, not to single anyone out, but Richard Rules. Yours in solidarity, Gidden. First, Gidden, thanks for a new tagline. This is how you're home for dismal information. Also, Gidden, I like my uh, back medicine uh, to have harmed as many bear gallbladders as possible. Like they say, if a bear's gallbladder isn't hurt, then your back pain medicine is probably not working. Honey Honey fried licorice is the weirdest thing I've heard since spicy pineapple Michelob Ultra Organic Seltzer which is an actual thing and shouldn't be, and we should all do everything we can to wipe it from existence. Thanks, Gidden, for not only sending back pain medicine, but also for sending a friend to our listener appreciation party and art show, which used to be an annual event until the pandemic hit. And yes, Gidden. Richard Rules, you too can send us stuff too. This is hell. 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor. Chicago, Illinois, 60659. You can also email us, DM us via Twitter, or send us a message via Facebook. Coming up, the history of police violence in Detroit can be a guide as we yet again attempt to address racialized police brutality in the United States. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you old enough to remember? What are you old enough to remember? And I'll tell you a little bit more about why, exactly why... I missed the show yesterday. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is Hell Detroit, like many cities across the United States, reacted to the burgeoning post-war civil rights movement with police violence. As people of color, especially African Americans, started demanding the rights seemingly guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution, cities like Detroit reacted with violent, often deadly crackdowns by police, while Detroit was being branded by the media as the murder capital of the world. What it also was that was not being reported was the home of the most deadly police force in the United States, here to help us have a better understanding of racialized police violence and the decades-long campaign against it. Historian Matthew D. Lassiter wrote the Boston Review article, Police and the License to Kill, Detroit Police Killed Hundreds of Unarmed Blacks in Response to the Civil Rights Movement, Their Ability to Get Away With It, reveals why most of today's proposals to make police more accountable are bound to fail and how we can do better. Welcome to This Is Hell, Matt. Thank you for having me, Chuck, on This Is Hell, and thank you for a great summary of the Detroit Under Fire project as well. Yeah, just again, I want to repeat this. Detroit Under Fire is pub- was published in March. It's a pilot project of the Policing and Social Justice History Lab. Detroit Under Fire is a multimedia digital exhibit that documents patterns and incidents of police brutality and misconduct, as well as 188 fatal shootings and other killings by law enforcement in the city of Detroit during the era of the modern civil rights movement from 1957 to 1973. And you can find it by just searching on Detroit Under Fire, but we have also shared it on Facebook, on Twitter, and it is at our website as well. Let me just ask you a real gen- general question to start off. Why is what happened in Detroit from 1957 to 1963 or 1973 or even from the riot or the uprising in 1967 to 1973? Why is that important for us to look at today during today's uprisings against police violence? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, perhaps the most important for today is that the policies that were put in place, the legal changes, the cover-up 
apparatus that in response to the massive civil rights and black power demands for police accountability in the 60s and 70s are the same policies and laws that are continuing to govern and you know exonerate police officers for violence today and and it's really important to emphasize that this is not about the individual officer in the individual encounter. These are laws and policies and systems designed for non-accountability. But you point out that when you do look at the records, you're looking at records of individual actions. How much can that distract you from the, distract anyone? When you're looking at individual actions, how much can that distract you from a more systemic uh, critique of the Detroit Police Department or policing in general? That's a really good question. So we we started our project with the research question, how many people did the Detroit Police Department actually kill? That's impossible to know. It's completely hidden. A number of incidents never even got reported. And so phase one was just uh, backtracking through the archives, often building on the work of civil rights groups and just identifying people who had been lost to history. And as an aside, I think that's another very important justification. These are mainly young black males who have been labeled felons and their deaths have been blamed on them. And that lingers in, for their families and their communities. But we, we went into the project trying to look for what happened in these encounters. And what we increasingly found is that it was the policies and the systems that the police department actively encouraged shooting unarmed young black males during and after 1967 in response to black activism, black power, in response to a sense that the white majority in Detroit was gonna lose control of the city to African-Americans. And, and so over and over, we found that the policies and the laws, the prosecutors whitewashing, the homicide bureaus whitewashing of investigations are really what allows police violence to flourish in the street level encounters. What do you think is the long-term impact on justice within a place like Wayne County, the city of Detroit, when they do have that kind of prosecutorial corruption, if you will, in the way that they support the police at all ends. What happens to justice? What happens to to democracy when prosecutors and police can get away with whatever they want? It's far too late for justice for what happened during this era. I, I do believe, and our project has argued, that the current prosecutor in Wayne County should make all of these files available to the families, to the communities, to researchers like our project, that if they exonerated police officers in a fatal force incident, then they should show the evidence. Most of it is not secret grand jury evidence because they took almost none of these cases to the grand jury. And we can get these through Freedom of Information Act requests, but it's really laborious and you can't ask for it until you know the actual name of the person killed and the circumstances. And that took a huge amount of labor for a 22 person research team to dig up. And we've only still identified maybe three quarters of the fatal force incidents that the police department admits. 
and I would estimate possibly only half of the ones that actually happen. So there are people who are very loyal supporters of the police. They are unquestioning supporters of the, of the police. Can we say that that unquestioning support of police is driven by them being simply uninformed of how violent the police have been because the police have violently have covered up their violence with the help of prosecutors, with the help of their own uh, homicide bureau. How much do you think the, the blind support for police is due to the fact that people just don't know? That's a good question. And I, I think partly this is about exposing systems of state violence and what we saw with George Floyd is that a lot of white Americans, when confronted with you know, a horrible video, 13 minutes, will go to the streets. But most police violence doesn't happen you know, on camera. And one of the big questions for our project is, you know, you're always, as a historical project, thinking about causation and why things happen. And a lot of the encouragement for the police department's actions came from white neighborhoods and white voters in Detroit at the time. The civil rights movement was pushing for a civilian review board for police oversight. That was adamantly opposed, not just by the police department, but by white residents of Detroit. We found thousands of letters to the mayor from white residents saying, no way should we have a civilian review board because the police need to be unthrottled. They need total control to keep the black community in its place. And we saw a strong support for a stop and frisk law that the Detroit, that the city of Detroit passed in 1968, immediately after and in response to the uprising of 67. And so over and over, um, it really, you know, I, I would even go back to like Michael Brown and Ferguson is the most important question about whether Officer Darren Wilson is a racist or not, or guilty or not, or is the question, what policies, what forces of racial segregation and inequality put that officer and Michael Brown on the street where he was accosting him for, quote, manner of walking in the street and led to, the, to his killing? Like the, the policies and the larger social forces are there, and I think that's very hard for most white Americans to see, not just the individual wrong, but the larger structures, metropolitan structures of inequality, and the policies that bring us to a place like Detroit, 1971 to 73, when the stress unit just went on a killing spree. That's the stop the robberies, enjoy uh, safe street strategy that the police in Detroit had implemented. You were mentioning stop and frisk, and you also talk about the focus on low-level property crimes. These strategies that both come from, stem from, uh, you know, response to the civil rights movement. Stop and frisk and, you know, what some people would call the broken policy strategy of policing. We always talk about the remnants, the legacy of slavery and how that influences policing. To what extent is police violence today influenced by a backlash by police and the state and the city against the civil rights movement? Yeah, great question. And and so in this other book that I'm finishing up, one of the things that I document is that white and black youth break 
the laws, especially burglary, vandalism, and the drug laws at basically the exact same rate during the 1950s and 1960s. But black youth who do a low-level burglary, who are involved in a really minor property crime, the police just have the authority to shoot them. They shot a, a black teenager and killed him in the back when somebody called in a report that a dollar and 83 cents had been stolen from a cash box of a business. And then the police rolled up, the alleged kid who did it started running away and they just shot him and killed him. That just doesn't happen in white neighborhoods. It, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't happen in the suburbs. It wouldn't happen in Evanston, probably um, where you are in, you know, in Chicago. And then the, the other problem with this is because there was such a carte blanche, you know, preemptive authorization to kill quote unquote fleeing felons, when police officers did wrongful killings, it was just a script through which they could frame the victims and say that they were running away. I started the Boston Review article with a 13 year old boy who was walking home from playing at a friend's house when an officer shot him. I don't know if the officer did it on purpose or did it by accident. They were there to investigate a kind of racial friction incident in a racially transitional neighborhood. But once they shot him, then they just said he was a burglar. He was fleeing the scene. And then that was a kind of automatic, um, you know, trump card in the investigation, even though five or six African-American witnesses said he wasn't involved at all. And the Homicide Bureau didn't care, and the prosecutor didn't care to even listen to what they said. And at the time of that killing, you read the Detroit Police Department's use of firearms policy empowered officers to prevent the escape of fleeing felons with deadly force and located this power in officers' own sound discretion, which effectively provided a license to kill insulated from legal consequences. So how new was that policy or practice within the police department? Were the police becoming more violent because the impression that we always have is the farther you go back in history, the more violent police were, and they constantly are becoming or on a trajectory, no matter how slight or incremental that is, that police are becoming less and less violent. So how new was that incredible policy of giving police officers a license to kill in Detroit? This is why the history that we're, we're digging up in Detroit and that lots of other scholars are doing in other cities in the civil rights era is so important because it was the changes in the 60s and 70s that put the authorization to kill in the discretion, the almost unquestioned, unquestionable discretion of the officer on the street. And again, that's a policy decision. Before the mid-1960s, you could sue a police officer in court for um, beating you up or for um, wrongful death, and the officer could be personally liable. And the city of Detroit changed that in the mid-1960s because there was a massive protest movement when a police officer shot an African-American woman who he illegally tried to arrest, and she started walking away, shot and killed her. Her name was Cynthia Scott. We've done a big event about it with Black Lives Matter group in Detroit on the 50th anniversary last year. And her mother filed a lawsuit and there was so much attention. This wasn't just another killing. This was a huge surge of working class and poor 
people joining a protest movement that had been dominated by the NAACP up until then in the last few years. And the city changed the laws to remove liability from officers. Now, you could say that that is important to be able to sue the whole police department. And there have been a lot of wrongful death settlements from the 70s on. But at the same time, changes with police unions, with sending cases to arbitration, it's just insulated individual officers from accountability. And I don't want to say I think the individual officer accountability is the most important thing, but the policing system put a discretionary standard in place, and so did Michigan state law, and so did the Supreme Court in a series of decisions from the 60s to the 80s that made it almost impossible to second guess an officer if the officer claimed that there was a split second decision. And we don't treat officers like everybody else. We, um, we, say, we treat them kind of like a soldier in a war, you know, split second decision, heat of battle, that kind of thing. And that's a, that's a policy decision again. And let's talk about uh, political motivations as well, because I want to get back to stop and trist just for a second. You write that DPD violence, Detroit Police Department violence, was often politically motivated, especially against groups and individuals who protested police brutality. The white liberal regime resolved the problem of the Detroit Police Department's longstanding policy of making illegal investigative arrests by passing an anti-loitering law, giving police the discretion to arrest anyone in public for any reason, and proposing a stop and frisk ordinance to codify that common police practice as well. This was enacted over civil rights opposition in 1968. So is stop and frisk politically motivated? Is stop and frisk more a political activity than it is one of protecting the public from crime? And if so, how do we view stop and frisk differently when we see it as a political act more than a law enforcement act? Without question, it's about racial control, not crime control. And uh, an important point I want to make is they, they pass a law codifying stop and frisk in 68, but the policy, you know, the, the practice had been going on for a really long time. And one of the things that civil rights groups, the ACLU and the NAACP in particular, documented in the 50s and early 60s was that at least one third of all arrests by the Detroit Police Department, not counting traffic, were unconstitutional, that they would detain people on suspicion of being involved in a crime. The most infamous, not very well known story that we um, documented was two white women got killed about a month apart, a few weeks apart, in downtown Detroit in December 1960, and the police department arrested at least 1,500 black men, kept them in lockup for days at a time, tortured an unknown number of them. And I mean, this is, you know, has some resonance with the Chicago torture project that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. And they all had suspect in a murder investigation on their permanent police file when they would try to apply to college or get a job. And there was a kind of massive illegal system. And to your question about political motivation, stop and frisk and loitering arrest primarily happened downtown and in the commercial corridors or along the border between white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods during racial transition 
And it also happened, we documented um, in a targeted way to black power groups. The police precincts that were located nearest the active black power movements gave way more loitering tickets than other police precincts. And they basically used loitering arrests, which you could not question a loitering arrest. It's 100% just the officer says you're loitering. They use that as a way to harass and in some cases brutalize civil rights activists. This is a story that we think is a Southern story, but it's an American story and a Northern story. They constantly arrested activists when they were protesting outside of a store that wouldn't hire black people or protesting police violence. They arrested them for loitering or public disorder all the time. Why do we have this image? I, that, this has been confusing me for several years now. Why do we have this image of northern police, people, uh, cops up north being far more civil, being far more, uh, f- far less violent, far less, uh, having far less racialized police violence and brutality towards people of color? Why do we have that image? What, what created that image if, if we know that that's not true? Well, there, there's a lot of reasons, but I'll, I'll give you two. First of all, white America, you know, this nation collectively has never come to terms with the fact that, that the story of racial injustice is a fully national story. It's Mexicans and Mexican-Americans being lynched in the Southwest. It's the police violence in the urban North. It's what happened to the Chinese in California. It's not just a Southern story, but it allows the United States to maintain its liberal self-image to tell a story where the racial problem was mainly a Southern problem and then it escaped to the North in the mid-1960s with the Black migration and the so-called riots. And for so many white Americans, they learned the history of the civil rights movement in the North, starting with 1965 Watts in Los Angeles, a Western city, starting with Chicago and the so-called riot in 66, starting with Detroit and Newark in 67. And when you start the story there, it becomes a story of black violence where the police department's use of force is necessary to put down criminal rioters. And if you start the story a lot earlier, start the story from the very beginning, the NAACP was protesting police brutality in Northern cities in the 1910s and 1920s, as soon as it was getting off the ground. This is a long story of activism. We picked it up in 57, but our project is going to document it looking back and looking forward from 73 as well. And if you start the story in a different place and you talk about the systems of racial violence and brutality, then it becomes, then you have to confront the fact that, that when there was an explosion in Detroit in 1967, you cannot just say black Detroiters did the violence and the police repressed it because the police and other white segregationist politics and policies caused the unrest of 1967. So on networks like Fox News, they're saying that this uprising against police brutality and racialized police violence is brand new. This is something that's completely came out of nowhere. It's completely unprecedented. What do we miss in understanding the current uprising against police brutality when we don't recognize that this has been going on for over a century? 
Yeah, I mean, Fox News is obviously, um, I would say historically illiterate, but that's too kind because it's deliberately, you know, saying those kind of things. But I would say it, it's not just Fox News. It wasn't until quite recently that kind of mainstream liberal, you know, organizations like the New York Times were really documenting this kind of history and writing articles about it. And when black power erupted in the late 60s, mid to late 60s in the, in the urban north, there was extreme hostility to it from a kind of white liberal establishment. And so it's the whole country that is, you know, only relatively recently come into terms with the, this, this long history. Um, I, I'll give you an example that's not Fox News. The Department of Justice is required under a law that Congress passed, the Emmett Till Law, a few years back, to um, ask every FBI um, agency to investigate cold cases, um, unsolved homicides from the civil rights era. If you look at their reports, every single report is about a Southern state. The FBI offices in the North and the West didn't even, I doubt they even looked into their own files, but we know that African-Americans filed constantly filed complaints to the FBI asking them to investigate the deprivation of their civil rights in Detroit at the same time that Mississippi burning was happening in 1964 at the same time. And that, you know, I'm not saying from our project's perspective, our goal is not to get the Detroit FBI, you know, office to incarcerate some 85 year old former officer, but it's a, it's symbolic of how our country does not treat racial violence outside the South as systemic until very recently, the conversation hopefully is changing, but I'll, I'll tell you, Chuck, the same thing happened in 68, 67, 68 with the Kerner Commission report coming out and saying that what happened in the riots that they called it is actually about white racism and white liberals started having study groups and reading books about racism and started saying that they were going to change and change the country. And it didn't really change patterns of housing segregation or school segregation in the 70s and 80s much at all didn't really change differential policing back then. I'm hopeful that the multiracial movement that we're seeing now is going to make more systemic changes. But this is not the first time that a lot of white Americans have awakened to racial injustice and then, you know, gone back to sleep. You mentioned the killing of a couple of white women in 1960 uh, that led to the so-called 1960-61 crash crackdown as the policing and social justice history lab documenting criminalization and confinement of which you are affiliated states crash began in response to the murders of two white women Marilyn Lou Donahue and Betty James in separate incidents as they were walking to work in downtown Detroit which generated racial panic fanned by sensationalized coverage in the mainstream white newspapers. The result was a massive racial profiling and stop-and-frisk operation in Detroit's African-American neighborhoods and in the downtown business district with the Detroit Police Department officers reporting more than 150,000 street contacts with black men and juveniles who fit the general description of Negro male in his mid-20s. Most of the 1,500 black males arrested by the DPD were unlawfully detained for 72 hours, and many were subjected to extreme and illegal interrogation tactics, including brutality and torture. 
So how responsible was local Detroit media for the racialized police violence of the 1960s? The media may not have invented racism in Detroit or racialized police violence, but how much did they contribute to, even promote a police crackdown on black residents of Detroit? Yeah, I think the the white establishment media was, you know, part of the system of racialization, racialized violence, and, you know, a kind of seg- a segregationist agenda in the in an urban northern city, the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News wrote about black crime in sensational ways. They would identify by race through the mid 1960s, a you know black criminal, and they they treated them differently. They dehumanized them. They rarely, rarely questioned the police version. One of the challenges for our project is it was hard enough to identify 75% of the people that the Detroit police department admits killing. But in about a hundred of those cases, all we have to go on are the reports in the Detroit free press or Detroit news, which is just a summary of what the police told them. So we are trying to investigate, you know, what really happened when we really just have the police version. And I think our, estimations that you know a quarter of the killings were um, probably met a legal standard at least for further investigation as murder or manslaughter is conservative because we are still trying to read between the lines but i will say the michigan chronicle the african-american newspaper um, tended to investigate more it's just recently been digitized which was a real boon to our project and probably helped us double the number of you know, people we've identified. But, but back to your question, I would say the, the media is extremely responsible. During the 1967 uprising, the white newspapers wrote headline articles that a black power conspiracy of snipers was trying to kill police officers. The police didn't kill any snipers, uh, neither did the National Guard. They killed a bunch of young black males teens and 20s who were allegedly looting stores and were unarmed. But the newspapers told the white suburbs and white America more generally that there was a criminal conspiracy of black power militants shooting police officers and white people from the rooftops. And it justified extreme force. How much does the word riot, because that's the way that the media was covering it back then, how much does the word riot erase any political motivation from an uprising against police brutality? It does. It, it puts the political context of the uprising into a criminal frame. And it also puts it into a psychological frame that this is a kind of, you know, rage and it's not, you know, with a purpose. But this is a really interesting question because the the two groups in the United States that were most willing to put a clearly political frame on the Detroit 67 uprising and the other ones around the country were left-wing activists and black power type activists who believed that it was a rebellion against white oppression and extreme right-wingers like the Fox News you know, predecessors who said this is a black power armed insurgency that has to be crushed. And so you had the kind of the liberal center 
wanted to depoliticize it by saying, this is a, these are rioters, they're young black males without hope. We need to give them jobs. We need to do something about housing, slum housing. But what they weren't really willing to confront was systematic police violence and larger patterns of you know, housing segregation and the rest that were creating the conditions for, um, for the uprising of 67. You write that all police had to do was say that they knew that the person had committed a burglary and that, in their split-second judgment, opening fire was necessary to apprehend the suspect. Should our image of Detroit in the 1960s and 1970s not be one of a city in the middle of a crime spree as much as it should be understood as a site of racialized police violence against those demanding civil rights? Was Detroit more the murder capital of the world or the police violence capital of the United States? And is there a link? Yeah, I mean, Detroit was the police violence capital of the United States, but I'll say that had to do with the 67 uprising and the escalation in the early 70s. There were lots of other cities, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and others that, um, that had extreme levels of, of violence too. The, um, you know, even the the civilian murder rate is not well understood. Um, more than half of those were interpersonal conflict. It wasn't in commission of a crime. It wasn't muggers on the street. It tended to be alcohol-related, family domestic disputes. And the police department itself did a big study in the early 70s and said, oh, well, the media is reporting the murder capital of America wrong because this is mainly the same kinds of, you know, homicides that we've been seeing for decades within the family, within the, within the neighborhood, acquaintances, fights in bars and stuff like that. And there just weren't, you know, the thing that we, that surprised me a little is that we almost never found, we found a few, but there were not many examples of police killing people who were armed and committing a serious felony. It actually tended to happen most in the early 60s when there were still white gangs on the, in the outlying parts of the city that were doing armed robberies, and police would shoot them down. And most of the armed people until 67 that the police killed were white, a kind of like older working class white tradition before they mainly moved to the suburbs. And you know, for the most part, the, the violence, I mean, there was a lot of violence in the city. The gun, the gun ownership rates were extremely high. You know, there was a lot of civilian violence as well, but the police were for sure escalating rather than reducing the violence. And you know, we, we documented 188 homicides during this period. There were probably at least four times as many people got shot and non-fatally wounded by the police. And the police fired their guns a lot and missed people. And there was a huge amount of gunfire um, during, during this uh, time period. So is what was happening in Detroit in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, especially from 67 to uh, 73, is this unique uh, historical anomaly that has absolutely no comparison? Or was Detroit's violent racialized policing during the civil rights era repeated in other cities around the United States, because I'm starting to wonder to what extent there was a wave of urban uprisings nationally 
because nationally, people were (laughs) violently cracking down on African-Americans demanding equal rights, rights that are constitutionally guaranteed. I mean, we think of this era as an era of urban uh, riots that have no meaning whatsoever. But in reality, I mean, you watch these shows on PBS about the history of the civil rights movement, and you see the people protesting, and they talk about how they don't want whites-only water fountains or uh, going to uh, Woolworths and being, not being able to eat at the lunch counter, or they were uh, fighting for the right to vote. I never, in any of those shows, unless I'm missing something, I never hear them talk about how this was a nationwide protest against police brutality. Yeah, that's. I'm going to answer that both kind of horizontally across the country and then one comment about what came after 73. So I, this, the violent surge of police happened all around the country. And I, I just want to clarify, the police were extremely violent for, for forever. They were more violent in the Prohibition era of the 20s. They killed more people in Detroit and elsewhere than they did in the you know, during the World War II race riots um, or the mid to late 60s. Um, But the fatal force surged all around the country. And that, you know, this is a a debate. Um, A lot of the activists that we interviewed believe that the police department in white Detroit was psychologically unable to handle black power and the, the challenge of the 67 uprising in particular, and you know, responded politically and otherwise with force. Most of the killings that we've been able to document didn't happen in the middle of poor black neighborhoods in so-called high crime areas. They happened on the racial boundaries. The stress unit that we've mentioned was claimed that they were protecting black Detroiters from crime because black residents were the main crime victims, but they deployed almost all white officers undercover. So how could they have been protecting black people? And they patrolled neighborhoods that were gentrifying near the downtown area. And so I think that it was happening everywhere. My own um, belief is that it was particularly intense in Detroit because no American city flipped from you know, two-thirds white to four-fifths black as fast as Detroit did with the deindustrialization of the auto industries and the, like, extreme Jim Crow line between the white suburbs and the city. And Detroit had experienced racial transition and the rise of black political power so fast that the white violence was, you know, it was revanchist. It was a particularly intense. Um, the one thing I want to say to you know, to leave this with. Our next project is called Crackdown. It's going to come out next year. It documents from 74 to 93 during the time of Detroit's first black mayor, Coleman Young. And what's, what's a kind of historical puzzle is that the number of people that the police department killed did not decline by very much during this period, even though they hired a lot more black officers. And even though they tried at least a little bit to curb the use of force against unarmed fleeing males in particular. And that's also a national story. That seems very tied to the ramping up of the war on drugs and the war on gangs and the busting into people's houses, rolling up on people in street corners, even in segregated black neighborhoods, not just 
the, the, the Detroit Police Department wasn't even trying at all to deal with crime that was happening in segregated poor black neighborhoods. They either didn't care or they were corruptly profiting from it, like sex work and the drug trade. And in the 80s and 90s, a lot of people are being killed by black officers as well as white officers in war on drugs type situations and other, you know, and other kind of like broken windows, stop and frisk, militarized policing that would escalate. So just a couple more questions for you. You, um, As you were just mentioning, uh, Coleman Young was elected as mayor of Detroit in 1973. He abolished the stress police crackdown soon after taking office, but his community policing reforms did not fundamentally change the platform or the patterns of police violence and brutality in Detroit, especially because he simultaneously launched a get tough crackdown on crime, drugs and gangs to what explains what would appear to be contradictory policies was this a policy built out of a kind of an attempt at bipartisan consensus and and can you satisfy diehard supporters of police and still have effective police reform yeah so what coleman young said was that the era of the police terrorizing law-abiding black people was over and that it was not acceptable for the police to just you know, beat up a middle-class black family or, you know, he, he used the phrase law-abiding a lot, that law-abiding people should not be um, harassed by the police. And it still kept happening, but the city, the police department, which came under a black police commissioner, were more willing to investigate it and especially more willing to settle lawsuits and they just got sued. They paid so much money out in the 70s and 80s. Um, you had a whole industry of you know, lawyers suing. And, and so they tried to change that. What they didn't change was a sense that if you're in a gang, so-called gang, if you're selling drugs, if you're committing crimes, if you're robbing, you're forfeiting your rights. And the language of black political leaderships, not just Coleman Young, but around the country, the tough on crime language during this period was about drawing a line between the law abiding black community and the young gangsters and the language toward the so-called and the language toward these young black males who, you know, are participating in an underground economy um, in a city where the jobs are cratering language toward them as sort of non-citizens. There's a, there's a scholar, Michael Stouch, who has a book coming out soon about Coleman Young, and he really gets into this. It, it was extreme, and that happened all around the country. And so Coleman Young's reforms changed some things, but they didn't get at the larger question of police violence. And the other extremely important thing, if, if I'll just say, is the longtime demand of the civil rights movement was to take all investigative oversight of police brutality and misconduct out of the department into an elected civilian commission. Coleman Young himself had supported this for a long time. When he got elected, instead the city implemented a board of police commissioners whose members would be appointed by the mayor. And it didn't really have oversight power that was very effective. And Coleman Young said it was okay because now you had a black mayor appointing the members. And it just didn't work 
in the way that the uh, that civilian oversight, um, you know, it would not have been a panacea. Um, the, the problem is deeper than just civilian investigation. The problem is what do we expect when we put armed police officers into neighborhoods and give them discretionary power? But it, it would have at least provided a kind of oversight that has never been there in Detroit or really any other American city. Do you see that same kind of shortcoming in the reform proposals that are being made today? Well, I think that there are, it it depends on whether you're talking about a kind of mainstream liberal Joe Biden, Democrats in Congress reform proposal or the reform proposals that are coming out of Black Lives Matter activism and and the more radical movement. And I think the radical movement, you know, the, the defunding, the idea that armed, like, why don't we do it like Europe? We don't need armed officers responding to mental health emergencies, responding to, you know, we should uh, legalize all drugs and just, we could remove a lot of violence if we just stop criminalizing drugs because the violence doesn't come from the drugs, it comes from the prohibition against drugs. And there's changes we can make to really dramatically reduce the violence, move toward you know, a, a public health, non-coercive public health approach. And I strongly believe that investigations of police departments should not be done by the department or the prosecutor. We should have independent civilian investigations. Communities should control their own police departments the same way they control their own school boards. I mean, five people elected by the voters can fire the school superintendent, but they can't do that with the police commissioner. Why are the police um, different than other government agencies in terms of accountability? I think that's really important, but a kind of legal process that still depends on assessing the individual guilt or innocence of an individual officer is never going to address the broader systemic issue. That has to be a much more you know, macro level approach. And one thing I kept thinking about when I was reading your article and then looking at the website Detroit Under Fire is how much, you know, we have this phrase of democracy stops at the schoolhouse door. Democracy stops at the workplace door. Democracy stops at the jailhouse door. And it's really important, I think, for all of us to remember that same thing happens at the police station. Democracy stops as soon as it gets to that police station door, which leads me to my final question for you, Matt. We've been speaking with historian Matthew D. Lasseter, who wrote the Boston Review article, Police and the License to Kill. Matthew is professor of history at the University of Michigan and on the steering committee of the UM Carceral State Project and is the co-principal investigator, along with Ashley Lucas, of its Documenting Criminalization and Confinement Research Initiative. Matt is the director and primary investigator of the DCC Project, the Policing and Social Justice History Lab, and Detroit Under Fire, which was published in March, is the pilot project of the Policing and Social Justice History Lab. You can find Detroit Under Fire just by searching on whatever search engine you use. It'll be the first thing that pops up, or you can find it at our Facebook page, a link there, as well as we shared a link on Twitter and at our website, thisishell.com. One last question for you, Matt, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question for you is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that during the mid-1960s, 
The Detroit Police Department's Tactical Mobile Unit and other DPD officers used the anti-loitering law to launch a campaign of harassment and wrongful arrests against members of the city's leading anti-police brutality organization, the Adult Community Movement for Equality Afro-American Youth Movement. In 1966, the DPD and Wayne County prosecutors joined forces to crush this organization on false charges of inciting a riot and advocating violence which at least one and possibly several undercover FBI DPD agent provocateurs had actually instigated. So my huge question for you, Matt, is what happens to democracy when protest becomes a crime? I mean, that is a great question. The It was, first of all, difficult enough to figure out that one of Detroit's leading black power activists was likely undercover FBI. And you know, I, I want to end on a more positive note because what we saw repeatedly was police violence, not just against black Detroiters, but against political activists. But we also documented the most, probably, you know, among the most sustained, active, militant movements to curb the power and the racist power of a police department in American history. And it was inspiring to see the, you know, over and over. I mean, this is a story that's been told by scholars and that activists know and that black Detroiters know. And we didn't, we didn't um, come up with this. We are just making public on our website, putting the documents out there that these activists themselves created in the 1960s and early 1970s, and just serving as a kind of, you know, platform for the work that they already did. And I think that it is inspiring to activists today to realize not just the horrible history of violence, but the you know, truly remarkable history of resistance in Detroit and elsewhere during this time period. How dare you end on a positive note? <laughs> this is hell, right? Exactly. Matt, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. This has been a really fantastic conversation. I'm a sucker for learning more about my hometown of Detroit. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you so much for you know promoting this project and allowing me to to join you today. It was, it's been really fantastic. And again, it's uh, just search for Detroit Under Fire. It really is an amazing multimedia project, and you could spend the entire weekend looking through it. Thanks again, Matt. I appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. You too. If you like what you just heard, please show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all of the ways you can support your friends here at This Is Hell, bringing you bong-hitting journalism. Since 1996, This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from hell is, what are you old enough to remember? What are you old enough to remember? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can find all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And thanks to Jacob H., who showed his support by going to thisishell.com and clicked on support. Thanks, Jacob. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us, email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Richard, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. Yes, we have Adam 
He says he remembers being treated like an ass at a burger joint, which counted as part of its quaint charm. <laughs> was that Ed DeBevix by chance? I bet that was. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't mention. Yeah, I think it was. Shane remembers when Chuck had a piano player. <laughs> that is pretty old. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I think we had a accordion player too. Yes, we did. We had a five foot four inch <laughs> pianist. Pretty amazing. Michael D. says, I forgot. <laughs> okay. David Z. says he remembers when DDT was in my cyclomates. <laughs> All right. And cyclomates are like an artificial sweetener like saccharin. Oh, look at you. <laughs> look at you. <laughs> Doing some research. I thought it was somebody you bicycled with. <laughs> Cycle mates. That would cycle mates. <laughs> Mark Cooper says he remembers when communist infiltration. He remembers communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and purify all of our precious bodily fluids. <laughs> okay, is that Mark Cooper with a C? By the way, M A R C Cooper. Yes. Okay, I think that's a media person from out in the West Coast. I see. Uh, Zach N. says he remembers. I'm old enough to remember when, remember when, wasn't the lowest form of conversation. (laughs) Bob P. says he remembers my dad had those garters. And he's referring to Alex's picture of uh, someone wearing uh, calf-length Socks with little garters holding them up. <laughs> I, I've never oh. seen or worn men's garters I for socks. Just, How about you? That's too much work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Aaron D says he remembers when the Equal Rights Amendment was going to pass. <laughs> dot dot dot. And sipping the high C out of forty-six ounce cans. <laughs> God, that's disgusting. <laughs> Okay, Brian H. has uh, a triplet going on here. He has, remembers rusty beer cans. Okay. He remembers beer can openers. Okay. I, I think he means beer cans that needed openers. Yes. And white go-go boots. Oh, well, there you go. Oh, he has a fourth one. No, oh, what's that? Oh, my God. Roast beef on white bread with mayo. That's disgusting. Is that something you want to remember? Do you want to erase that from your I think memory? That's part of, that's, point, that's the point of this. I see. <laughs> Kelly H., when Muzak was pejorative. <laughs> I went into a bank one time, found the, found the Muzak control, and turned it up to 10. As I was taking the elevator down, the Muzak kept getting louder and louder till I got to the lobby of the bank, and people were running around everywhere trying to figure out how to turn down the Muzak. It was very enjoyable. Jeremy T., he says he remembers the lyrics to Purple People Eater. Oh, Jesus. I like short shorts. <laughs> Johnny C says he remembers the wired remote for the TV. Oh, yeah. They used to have a wire that went from the remote to the TV. That was ridiculous. Uh, okay. Is that about it? Yes. No, we have a few more. Okay. Ben G. Cheese Analog. <laughs> okay. Which is like fake cheese. I guess. And uh, Wally R says Pillsbury food sticks. Oh, God. Disgusting. uh, You have to look that one up, kids. I think they went by (laughs) space sticks at one time. Lisa 
Uh, it says, playing outside with other kids, adult-free, all over the neighborhood, and sometimes other neighborhoods. <laughs> yep, I still see that every so often. I'm always happy to see, like, two six-year-olds running down the street without any parents around. <laughs> John H. Lawn darts. <laughs> the old jart. Yes. And what are you old enough to remember? Miff D says, on my uncle. So I had to look this one up. <laughs> She's Australian, and I think this is like a, one of those weird TV shows that, you know, like your crazy uncle did this or that kind uh-huh. of thing. Uh-huh. I think that's what that's referring to. Oh, so it's like that's, kids do the craziest things, except it's for uncles? Yes. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I really want to see that show about uncles and aunts doing crazy things. That sounds great. Any more? A few more, yes. Okay. Because we, we, we had a day off. Yeah. We have a ton of them. Jacob H., he remembers high school. Okay. Don G, when the gas attendant would ask if we wanted regular or unleaded. They still do that in New Jersey. It's illegal for you to pump your own gas. I'd love that in New Jersey. Uh, 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 Did I say the wrong person? Don Don G. Okay, and then we have a Kim G. My fifth grade performing a musical about the Reagan-Carter election. (laughs) There was a musical about that? (laughs) I want to hear about that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Richard has connections in the theater scene. He can make that happen. And uh, our lovely Jeffrey D. says, I remember when Pasolini was torn in half and the Italian pigs framed a male prostitute for it. And he's referring to Pier Pialo Pasolini, who was a writer and film director in the late 60s and early 70s. He wrote and directed many kind of quote controversial films and they were highly sexual and et cetera, et cetera. And then Um, he was murdered? And he was murdered, yes, apparently by the mafia or at least a mafia style hit on him because it was pretty uh, extreme and uh, and it would take uh, several people to accomplish this kind of uh, tragedy. But we know that the mafia wasn't involved because there is no mafia, right? (laughs) Exactly. Thank you. And we're going to keep it that way, right, Richard? <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Two more. Okay. Jess W., I remember the fay, which means fairy, and the conversation of the oaks and spirits in the forest. Wow. Okay. David S. says he remembers when we thought the greatest thing was wrapped bread before <laughs> the changed... Before life changed forever, when some genius figured out how to slice the damn bread. <laughs> the damn bread. Is that it? That's it. Uh, for more of your answers to this week's question from hell, what are you old enough to remember? Just tune in to tomorrow's show. Leave your answer at our Facebook page. Tweet them to us. Email them to us. But we must have your reply by the end of tomorrow's show. Speaking of which, Richard, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com? On Thursday, we have Rona Lorimore on her Brooklyn Rail article, Pity the Poor Police, New Laws to Back the Blue. And a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, as I was saying earlier. Tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream at the same place as well as share it on social media. One last thing about not being able to do yesterday's show. I do not have 
lucid dreams. Lucid dreaming is when you are conscious while you are dreaming. That is, you are aware you are dreaming. And because of this awareness, you can do things in your dreams. You can interact with them. Many lucid dreamers say the first thing to learn how to do is look at your hands and view them accurately in your dreams, which leads lucid dreamers to, while awake, staring at their hands so they can recreate a better image of them while dreaming. So you practice lucid dreaming by staring at your hands while you're awake. Then when you start dreaming, you go to look at your hands, and once they are clearly visible to you, your lucid dreaming can begin. Eventually, lucid dreamers say they can fly in their dreams and do things we could never dream of doing in reality. In lucid dreaming, the dream world becomes as real as any reality you have ever witnessed, yet you are cognizant of being in a dream and able to manipulate it. Every time I start lucid dreaming and realize I am asleep, dreaming, I'm jarred out of sleep and wake up, usually frightened by what had just happened in my dreams because the dream seemed far too real, which means I do not have lucid dreams and whenever I do, my sleep is ruined. This all brings us back to me and not being able to do Tuesday's show. Lucid dreaming, being in a dream state where everything seems as real as when you are awake can be frightening, especially for people like me who do not practice lucid dreaming. But even more frightening is what is known as a false awakening. When you wake up, start going about your daily routine, suddenly your alarm goes off again and you realize that that start to your daily routine was just a dream. A really boring dream. Still, that boring nature of your dream uh, appearing to be your normal day and then waking up and realizing you have to do it all over again that false awakening can be incredibly scary unlike lucid dreaming during a false awakening you do not recognize you are dreaming or have any control over the dream but it appears as real as any lucid dream now I'm not an expert so I do not know which I experienced while sleeping Sunday night into Monday morning But I had a dream, which is now a recurring dream, where I see my brother who recently passed away, and I'm convinced that he is still alive, and I'm very upset at everyone who keeps telling me he isn't. I wake up, and for a moment, I believe my brother Matt is still with us, and then I have to go through the whole grieving process again as my mind gets a grip on reality and remembers and and acknowledges that my brother's dead. It's freaking torture to think that somebody's alive, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh no, they're dead. So thanks to all of you for putting up with me not being here yesterday because for me and this grief that seems to be playing on a loop, I don't know if I'm suffering from lucid dreaming or false awakenings. All I know is for me, this is hell. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Merce. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Richard for producing. Thanks to our guest, guest Matthew Lassiter. Also thanks to... Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a very proud race and gender traitor. This is hell. On oh, my butt. <laughs> uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.